0: Welcome to podcast number 41 here at the Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. Let's kick things off with the master thespian from Saturday Night Live, John Lovitz and Glenn Close playing his leading lady, Astoria Dubois. I have no idea who wrote these skits, but they are nothing short of brilliant.
1: Now, we bring you another page from the diary of the world's greatest actor, Master Thespian.
2: There! Dear diary, woe is me! Tonight, I open in Romeo and Juliet, the later years. Shakespeare's true version, in which the ill fated lovers do not meet until middle age. But lo, I've committed the actor's folly of falling in love with my leading lady, the beautiful Astoria Dubois, the fifth! And she, being a human being, is hopelessly in love with myself, Master Thespian, thank you! (laughs) Unfortunately, during previews, I have found myself distracted for the first time I've noticed another actor on stage... and I found myself actually listening. It's quite a good play. (laughs) And so, because our consuming passion is ruining my performance... I must dump her. I hope I break her heart. Not! She knocks. Wish me well, O faithful diary. Enter all! Darling, you need not knock.
3: Oh, Thespian, you fool. That was my heart beating with love. <laughs> oh, darling, last night was so wonderful. When we made the beast with two backs.
2: Did what?
3: Made love.
2: So that. Continue!
3: When we made love, I realized, with all my training as an actress, with all the great love scenes I have played, nothing could have prepared me for the greatest love scene of all. When you screamed like a man afflicted with a rare case of botulism, for which there is no known cure, and our souls meshed as one. I'm dumping you. You bastard! (laughs) Why?
2: Because I don't love you. I never did. And I never will.
3: But what about last night?
2: Acting. (laughs) But what about the screaming?
3: (laughs) Projection. Oh, what a relief. At last I don't have to play out this charade.
2: Charade? Well, all right. How many words?
3: Four. You are an idiot.
2: All right. Uh,
3: First word shut up you insufferable fool you overbearing ham make up your mind i never loved you i've been using you to further my career
2: but what about last night
3: i wasn't even in the bed
2: (gasps) (gasps) but when i
3: acting i'll
2: say genius thank you no thank you shut up
3: Just the thought of you touching me makes my flesh crawl. And you thought I loved you, schmuck.
2: Stop! Oh, no more. These words enter in mine ears like daggers. you ripped apart my soul like a rabid dachshund ripping into a baby piglet.
3: So, you do love me.
2: What did I just say?
3: And I love you. Oh, thespian, oh, thespian. Let us elope tonight after the play. Well, after the reviews.
2: Oh, there is nothing I would rather do, my dear. But you see, I am already married.
3: You bastard! Why are you doing that?
2: Because I don't want to be slapped again. I
3: wasn't going to slap you. Oh, you fooled me. Acting. Genius. Thank you. Oh! <laughs> you slapped me. No, I didn't. Oh, you fooled me. Acting. Genius. Thank you. Oh. Your wife.
2: Her name is acting.
3: <laughs> Thesbian, brace yourself, I have some shocking news. You've been divorced for years I have? Yes.
2: Oh darling. Can you ever love a divorced man?
3: I already do.
2: Ah, come, my dear. After you.
3: Oh, I do adore you so, Thesby. And I love
2: you. Oh, wait! You're back! It, it looks so lovely in this light. Don't you think the audience would like to see more of it? Oh, you slapped me! No, I didn't! Oh, you fooled me! Acting! Genius! Thank you! Thank you all! No, thank you! Thank you all! Thank you, thank you. Thank you.
4: While I'm drifting and dreaming In the still of the night My thoughts all
5: stray to you
4: By the moon's mellow
5: light
4: While the world is in slumber Oh, the times without number Darling, when
5: I
3: We were very tired, we were very merry, we were very tired, we were very merry, we had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. It was bare and bright and smelled like a stable, but we looked into a fire, we leaned across a table, we lay on a hilltop underneath the moon, and the whistles kept blowing and the dawn came soon. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. And you ate an apple and I ate a pear from a dozen of each we had bought somewhere. And the sky went warm and the wind came cold and the sun rose dripping a bucket full of gold. We were very tired. We were very merry. We had gone back and forth all night on the ferry. We hailed good morrow, mother, to a shawl-covered head and bought a morning paper, which neither of us read. And she wept, God bless you, for the apples and pears. And we gave her all our money, but our subway fares.
0: Cold Porter's In the Still of the Night and after that, we heard Edna St. Vincent Millay of Camden, Maine, reading her poem, Recuerdo, in an accent that comes from somewhere out in the Atlantic Ocean, about halfway between the coast of New England and the British Isles. This was the fashionable speech of the northeastern United States, especially in the first half of the 20th century. We can hear it as well in the voice of Leslie Hutch Hutchison, who was a mixed-race vocalist from Grenada, who in the 1920s and 30s was one of the most highly paid performers in Britain. He was regularly heard on the BBC, and a relationship with Lady Edwina Mountbatten, the wife of Lord Lewis Mountbatten, caused a scandal among the titled class. The character Jack Ross in Downton Abbey was based on Hutchison. Let's listen now to his version of These Foolish Things.
6: Will you never let me be? Or will you never set me free? The ties that bound us are still around us. There's no escape that I can see. And yet those foolish things remain. They bring me home. That there's a lipstick's traces, an airline ticket to romantic places, and still my heart has wings, these foolish things remind me of you tinkling piano in the next apartment No stumbling words that told you what my heart meant A fairgrounds painted springs. This foolish thing remind me of you You came, you saw You conquered me When you did that to me I Somehow
5: that it had to be
6: The winds
5: of March
6: That make my heart a dancer The telephone that rings But who's to answer Oh, how the ghost of you clings These foolish things Remind me of you Long excited cables, then candlelights on little corner table, and still my heart has wings. These foolish things remind me of you. The smile of garble and the scent of roses, the waiters whistling. As the last bar closes The beauty that it springs These foolish things remind me of you How strange, how sweet to find you still These things are dear to me They seem to bring you so near to me the sigh of midnight train in empty stations. Two lovers on the street, dance invitations. Oh, how the ghost of you
5: clings.
6: This foolish thing Remind me Oh
0: The smile of Garbo and the scent of roses. A waiter whistles as the last bar closes. The sigh of midnight trains in empty stations. Two lovers on the street. Dance invitations. Rather evocative, the lyrics were written by an Englishman named Eric Mashwitz, who also went by the name of Holt Marvel, who allegedly wrote the lyrics after saying a final farewell to Anna Mae Wong, with whom he had a relationship she was one of the first Asian actresses to appear in American and British film and theater productions. Let's listen to one more song performed by Leslie Hutch Hutchinson. This is A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley
6: Square. When true lovers meet in Mayfair, so the legends tell. Songbirds birds sing, winter turns to spring. Every winding street in Mayfair falls beneath the spell. I know such enchantment can be, cause it happened one evening to me. That certain night, The night we met There was magic abroad In the air There were angels Dining at the Ritz And a nightingale sang In Barclays
5: Square
6: I may be
5: right
6: I may be wrong But I'm perfectly willing To swell, but when you turned and smiled at me, nightingale sang in Barclay Square. A moon that lingered over London town, poor puzzled moon, he wore a frown. How could he know we two were so in love? The whole darned world seemed upside down. The streets of town were paved with stars. It was such a romantic affair. And as we kissed and said good night, a nightingale sang in Berkeley. the tap-dancing feet of a star, and like an echo far away, a nightingale sang in Barclays Square. I know cause I was there that night in Barclays.
0: The following story, Bumping into Mr. Ravioli, is in a collection called Through the Children's Gate. It's written by Adam Gopnik, who's a regular contributor to The New Yorker magazine. My daughter Olivia, who just turned three, has an imaginary friend whose name is Charlie Ravioli. Olivia is growing up in Manhattan, so Charlie Ravioli has a lot of local traits. He lives in an apartment on Madison and Lexington, he dines on grilled chicken, fruit, and water, and having reached the age of seven and a half, he feels or is thought old. But the most peculiarly local thing about Olivia's imaginary playmate is this. He's always too busy to play with her. She holds her toy cell phone up to her ear, and we hear her talk into it. Ravioli? It's Olivia. Olivia, come and play. Okay. Call me. Bye. Bye. Then she snaps it shut and shakes her head. I always get his machine, she says. Or she will say, I spoke to Ravioli today. Did you have fun, my wife and I asked? No, he was busy working on a television, leaving it up in the air whether he repairs electronic devices or has his own talk show. On a good day, she bumps into her invisible friend and they go to a coffee shop. I bumped into Charlie Ravioli, she announces at dinner, after a day when, of course, she stayed home, played, had a nap, had lunch, paid a visit to the Central Park Zoo, and then had another nap. We had coffee, but then he had to run, she sighs sometimes at her inability to make their schedules mesh. But she accepts it as inevitable, just the way life is. I bumped into Charlie Ravioli today, she says. He was working, then she adds brightly, but we hopped into a taxi. What happened then, we ask. We grabbed lunch, she says. It seemed obvious that Ravioli was a romantic figure of the big, exotic life that went on outside her little limited life of parks and playgrounds, drawn in particular from a nearly perfect bird like imitation of the words she hears her mother use when she talks about her day with her friends. How was your day? Oh, you know, I tried to make a date with Meg, but I couldn't find her, so I left a message on her machine. Then I bumped into Emily after that meeting I had in Soho, and we had coffee, and then she had to run. But by then, Meg had reached me on my cell phone, and we arranged. I was concerned, though, that Charlie Ravioli might also be the sign of some trauma, some loneliness in Olivia's life reflected in an imaginary form. It seems odd to have an imaginary playmate who's always too busy to play with you, Martha, my wife said to me. Shouldn't your imaginary playmate be someone you tell secrets to and, I don't know, sing songs with? It shouldn't be someone who's always hopping into taxis. We thought that at first her older brother Luke might be the original of Charlie Ravioli. For one thing, he is also seven and a half, though we were fairly sure that this age was merely Olivia's marker for as old as man can be. He is too busy to play with her much anymore. He has become a true New York child with the schedule of a cabinet secretary, chess club on Monday, t-ball on Tuesday, tournament on Saturday, play dates, and after-school conferences to fill in the gaps, Already their conversation tracks their chromosomes. Luke, how was your day, Olivia asks him at 3.30 after he has come home from school, as they sit eating cookies and cocoa. Okay, I guess, he says indifferently. What did you have for lunch, she persists. Uh, I don't remember. A sandwich, I guess. Luke, what did the teacher say about your birthday poem? Nothing. It was okay, I guess. Longer pause. She waits patiently. Finally, pointedly. Luke, how was my day? But Olivia, though she counts days, does not yet really have days. She has a day, and into this day she has introduced the figure of Charlie Ravioli in order, it dawned on us, to insist that she does have days because she is too harried to share them, that she does have an independent social life by virtue of being too busy to have one. Yet Charlie Ravioli was becoming so constant and oddly discouraging a companion. He canceled lunch again, Olivia would say, that we thought we ought to look into it. One of my sisters is a developmental psychologist who specializes in close scientific studies of what goes on inside the heads of one- and two- and three-year-olds. Don't worry about it, my sister said in a late-night phone call. Knowing something's made up while thinking that it matters is what all fiction insists on. She's putting a name on a series of manners. But he seems real to her, I objected. Of course he is. I mean, who's more real to you, Becky Sharp or Gandalf or the guy down the hall? "'Giving a man or a name makes it real.' "'I paused. "'I grasp that it's normal for her to have an imaginary friend,' I said. "'But have you ever heard of an imaginary friend "'who's too busy to play with you?' "'She thought about it. "'No,' she said. "'I'm sure that doesn't occur anywhere in the research literature. "'That sounds completely New York.' "'And then she hung up. "'I think we would have learned to live happily with Charlie Ravioli "'had it not been for the appearance of Lori. "'She threw us badly.' At dinner, Olivia had been mentioning a new personage almost as often as she mentioned ravioli. I talked to Lori today, she would begin. She says ravioli is busy. Or she would be closeted with her playphone. Who are you talking to, darling, I would ask. Lori, she would say. We're talking about ravioli. We surmised that Lori was, so to speak, the Linda Tripp of the ravioli operation, the person you spoke to for consolation when the big creep was ignoring you. But a little while later, a more ominous side of Lori's role began to appear. Lori, tell Ravioli I'm coming, I heard Olivia say. I pressed her about who exactly Lori was. Olivia shook her head. She works for Ravioli, she said. And then it came to us with sickening clarity. Lori was not the patient friend who consoled you for Charlie's absence. Lori was the bright-toned person who answered Ravioli's phone and told you that, unfortunately, Mr. Ravioli was in a meeting. Laurie says Ravioli is too busy to play, Olivia announced sadly one morning. Things seemed to be deteriorating. Now Ravioli was too busy even to say he was too busy. I got back on the phone with my sister. Have you ever heard of an imaginary friend with an assistant, I asked. She paused. Imaginary friends don't have assistants, she said. That's not only not in the literature, that's just, I mean, in California they don't have assistants. You think we should look into it? I think you should move, she said flatly. Martha was of the same mind. An imaginary playmate shouldn't have an assistant, she said miserably. An imaginary playmate shouldn't have an agent. An imaginary playmate shouldn't have a publicist or a personal trainer or a caterer. An imaginary playmate shouldn't have people. An imaginary playmate should just play with the child who imagined it. She started leaving on my pillow real estate brochures, picturing quaint houses in New Jersey and Connecticut, unhaunted by busy, invisible friends and their entourages. My sister had told me about the concept of a paracosm. A paracosm is a society thought up by a child, an invented universe with a distinctive language, geography, and history. Not long after the appearance of Laurie, something remarkable happened. Olivia would begin to tell us tales of her frustrations with Charlie Ravioli, and after telling us again that he was too busy to play, she would tell us what she had done instead. Astounding and paracosmic tall tales poured out of her, She had been to a chess tournament and brought home a trophy. She had gone to a circus and told jokes. Searching for Charlie Ravioli, she had saved all the animals in the zoo. Heading home in a taxi after a quick coffee with Ravioli, she took over the steering wheel and got all the monies. From the stalemate of daily life emerged the fantasy of victory. She had dreamed of a normal life with a few close friends and had to settle for worldwide fame in the front page of the tabloids. The existence of an imaginary friend had liberated her into a paracosm, but it was a curiously New York paracosm. It was the unattainable world outside her window. Charlie Ravioli, Prince of Busyness, was not an end, but a means, a way out onto the street in her head, a declaration of potential independence. Busyness is our art form, our civic ritual, our way of being us. Many friends have said to me that they love New York now in a way they never did before, and their love, I've noticed, takes for its object all the things that used to exasperate them, the curious combination of freedom, self-made fences, and paralyzing preoccupation that the city provides. Now when Martha and I ask each other, how did you spend the day, instead of listing her incidents, she says merely, oh, you know, just bumping into Charlie Ravioli, meaning just bouncing from obligation to electronic entreaty, just spotting a friend and snatching a sandwich, just being busy, just living in New York. If everything we've learned in the past year could be summed up in a phrase, it's that we want to go on bumping into Charlie Ravioli for as long as we can. Olivia still hopes to have him to herself someday. As I work late at night in the study, I keep near the nursery, I can hear her shift into pre-sleep, still muttering to herself. She is still trying to reach her closest friend. Ravioli! Ravioli, she moans as she turns over into her pillow and clutches her blanket. And then she whispers almost to herself, tell him to call me. Tell him to call me when he comes home. You've been listening to a story called Bumping Into Mr. Ravioli, written by Adam Gopnik and published in a collection of short stories called Through the Children's Gate. Mr. Gopnik is a regular contributor to The New Yorker magazine.
1: Take sweet, sweet one fresh and tender kid. The memories you gave of me. one stolen night of bliss. The memories you gave me. One girl, one boy. Some grief, some joy. sweet more you Made of this. The memories you gave me. Girl, problem, boy, grief, of you you gave me. Don't. Oh, sweet, sweet. Forget a be small moonbeam you be the memories you gave me. Fold sweet, sweet, in lightly you gave with me. a dream Your lips the memories you gave me. I lips and mine Two to of wine Memories sweet, sweet, are, memories are made of them Club. Three little kids for the flavor Stir carefully through the days See
5: how the flavor stays These are the dreams you will savor
1: With sweet, sweet his blessings you can, from you above can.
3: generously love You can't beat the memories you gave
1: of you you gave me One man, where, but one wife One love when when you Through life you Man, sweet, sweet man. The memories you are made of this You can't beat the memories you gave of me Man
0: Closing out the show with Dean Martin, and memories are made of
5: this.
0: (laughs) Folks, thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long from the Voice of the Arts, wishing you love, laughter, and good health. (laughs)